Daniel Reynolds, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. I'm, I'm hanging in there. Hanging in there? Um, how's your quarantine life been? Well, I don't have a ton of space uh, in terms of my, you know, my condo unit. But I mean, obviously, I'm online all the time. I'm on my computer. It's it's sort of in that sense, it hasn't really changed that much. And I can work. I can be sitting here in my shorts, you know, and a t-shirt as opposed to having to get dressed up to go to work. So it's not so bad. Yeah. Is the city still running well? Like what's going on with the city right now? Well, I mean, other than the fact that there's going to be a huge, you know, budget shortfall because of all the the slowdown in various, you know, home sales and all this other stuff, there's some trouble there. But we are trying to carry on as business as usual as much as we can, given given the situation. But anyway, it's tough. Yeah. You know, I was talking to Blake Murphy earlier this week, mm-hmm. recording one of these, and he was wondering if you were going to include uh, meetings as one of the things that you like. Um, so can you just clarify whether you're a big fan of having meetings? Here's what I'll say about meetings. The city has a lot of them. And I like to a certain extent that there are now fewer of them because it's harder to do over the phone. I find that there are two types of meetings. There are meetings that feel collaborative, like you're actually working with people to solve an issue or problem. And then there are ones where you're talking about a thing. And at the end of the meeting, someone says, okay, we're going to look back. We're going to look at that and get back to you which basically means you talked about something and nothing got solved. And now you're going to have to have another meeting to finalize that. So in those kind of meetings, I really do not like them at all. Yeah, it feels like 75% of corporate meetings uh, end with uh, someone suggesting that you should have another meeting yeah. to talk about this. Yes. Um, and, you know, and people just say, you know, let's put a pin on it. People love to put <laughs> pins on things. Um, you know, do you have certain things that you've put a pin on at the moment? I try not to use any of those phrases. I make a point of saying, I don't even like to say at the end of the day. You know, when people say, at the end of the day, we got to figure this out. I don't even like saying that. I like to figure out a solution. So you're like self-conscious. You're like self-conscious of of the corporate speak. I try to be, yeah. I try to be because I feel like sometimes we we end up talking in circles. Those things are designed to to talk us in circles. And I don't know, sometimes it feels like the consultants, you know, like the city doesn't get necessarily paid to be in meetings. But if you're a consultant, those are consultant hours, right? You're, you're, you're charging your client for sitting there to negotiate with the city. So the more times you do that, the more time you're building your client. And sometimes I'm sitting there going like, I don't, why am I here? Like, I know the answer already. Let's just do that, period. Yeah, no, that's a good point. So let's put a pin on that. And, you know, as people know, um, you know, people that have been listening uh, last week, this week, and, and maybe for the foreseeable future, um, I am exploring or rediscovering uh, the 2008 blog, Stuff White People Like, uh, with the help of my white friends. Uh, Reynolds, you familiar with this blog? You are, right? I, I was at the time. I, I remember sort of getting into it a little bit, like reading some of the things. And I remember, I, I distinctly remember when that book came out, because that was right at the time when like you could make like you could have like a good Twitter account or a good blog and like make a book out of it and like make some money off of a, a very silly like book for your bathroom, basically like toilet reading. Yeah, that was the golden era of, you know, if you went viral online, you got published. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could make uh, you could you could make something of it. Yeah, for sure. So you went through the list of, you know, I think there's like 130 plus items and you went through the list and, and picked out things on that list that you are familiar with and you're an expert in and that you can explain. So let's start with one of white people's favorite topics, The Wire. So (laughs) I want to read you a quick excerpt from the blog before we get into this. Um, And note that this was written, I guess, somewhere, you know, around 2008. The blog says, for the past three years, whenever you say The Wire, white people are required to respond by saying it's the best show on television. Try it the next time you see a white person. Oh, first of all, they've got me totally dead to rights. I was definitely a white person that went on and on about how The Wire is the best show on television. And I'm definitely someone now that would say, uh, like, it's worth watching and it, and it says a lot of things and does a lot of things. But I'm not, I'm not doing cartwheels down the street talking about how great it is. So, so what I found was, and I don't think this is just white people, but a lot of people discovered The Wire like after the fact, right? Mm-hmm. Um, were you someone who was watching it, you know, when it came out or someone who maybe heard about it later on and then caught up on, on the seasons? I, I found out about it very like um, almost like a, through osmosis, through online talk, because a lot of those shows I didn't when I was like back in the back in the early aughts, I didn't watch a lot of like 
hour-long drama television. Basically, all those shows, all those class, like all those '90s shows, like all the the drama, hour-long dramas. I didn't watch any of that. It, I really got started with Lost, if you can believe that, as one of the first shows I got really obsessed with. And then, and and shows on HBO, they didn't enter my consciousness to a certain extent because I didn't have HBO, and there was no real easy way to get that stuff. Now, of course, you can download any show you want. You can stream any show you want. There's all kinds of ways to get stuff. Back then, it was like a, it was just kind of like you heard about something, but it's like even something like The Sopranos. I knew about it, but I wasn't like I. There was no way to get a, my hand on it. So right near the end of, I feel like maybe right before or during season five was airing. I think is around the time when I got started on it because I remember watching the end of season five relatively, uh, like relatively live. So I remember watching like I remember like making a point of getting the final few episodes of that, of that season and watching it as, as it was sort of happening. Yeah. Re- real ones will remember that season four leaked online um, before it released, but the person who leaked it online labeled the episodes wrong. Oh, really? So everyone online was watching it out of order and not understanding oh. what was going on. Um, I did and not I know that. that. I did not know that. <laughs> I, I think I started with like episode eight. It was it went from like episode one to eight, and then like three, and I had Whoa. no idea what was going on. Um, I think with the wire too, like it's it's a very it's a very woke show, right? Like like for a time, it was like if you watch the wire, you're like socially conscious and you're woke. I mean, it, it opens your eyes to like I think it opens your eyes to thinking about how these systems operate. Like I think you know what it, when I was thinking about this to prepare for this, I, I remembered. Uh, an episode of I, I'm going to go out here and say this. I remember an episode of the BS Report a million years ago, back when I stuff white people like I, when I was listening to Bill Simmons's podcast when Chuck Klosterman was on it, and he was talking about how season five with the the journalistic angle, the he thought that that was kind of totally fake, and it sort of made him realize that like well since that's sort of totally ridiculous, that most of the other stuff that purports to be very real is also fake. And so it kind of it, it presents a certain reality, and it and it is it does seem very authentic, because because of the because David Simon and Ed Burns are like, you know, former journalists, former cop, they're on the ground, so it feels like that would be the case, but there's always going to be dramatic license, and there's always going to be sort of a way to uh, you know extend beyond the bounds of reality. Let's say. Yeah, I don't know if you remember, but uh, Kate Burness from TSN. Once, like, I think she went to Baltimore. Yeah. And she, like, took a tourist photo in front of the projects. Yeah. Where, like, the guys hung out in season one. Oh, man. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's my, that's my oh, whitest boy. memory of the wire. Yeah, that's, see, it's that sort of thing where it's like, I don't know. I don't know if you, it's not a, it's not a tourist destination in that regard. You don't go there and take photos of the, of Wallace's couch or something and say, like, look, it's, it's right there. But it did, but it did get that sort of idea right. Like, there's an episode there where they destroy the. Remember when they blow up the project towers in season? It starts one of the seasons. I think it's maybe season. Right, the towers come down. Yeah. yeah, and it's like that's a big deal that like they have to now like the drug the drug trade was going through those projects, but it's like but it's but he, but what he's what David Simon is trying to get to is like the broader idea of like the forces of gentrification and how like government. Uh, sort of neglect allows areas to fall apart so that then they can go back in with, you know, and, and cheaply buy up land and regenerate and push all the black people out. Like there's something to that idea. And you could say, well, it's woke, but it's like, but it is worth knowing that. And now in my own job, I think about that and how we apply that in this city. It is worth knowing and thinking about, even if how you had to learn it was like a TV show. So what you're saying is the wire has informed how you approach your day-to-day job. <laughs> yes, I have learned that it's, you know, you got to do it with a briefcase or a shotgun and you got to make sure you wear a tie, that sort of thing when you're going to important meetings. So, I had asked you to prepare for this and, you know, I want to know who do, who do you think is the top 3 uh characters on the wire that white people root for? Well, one and two, it's I think it's like the easiest answer. Uh Omar is number 1. Because I feel like he is the character that most disrupts the idea of like, of like, um, like the 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 world as we know it. Like we like to imagine that there would be a uh, an agent of chaos, let's say, like a Robin Hood figure that would that would be patrolling the streets and doing what he wants, but then also operate by a code 
and like never, you know, never put his gun on any citizens, as he says, and follow, you know, follow certain rules and like and live totally outside of like the cops versus robbers kind of mentality. Um, but of course, I mean, I, I've, I think I read somewhere that he he's based on a real guy, but it's, but I mean, if, if you go back and watch like season three, where he's showing up, like with, when they're, he and brother Muzone have their showdown, it's like, that's, a, that's a cartoon. Like it's almost, it's almost like something out of a, like a, it's a, like a Western standoff, like out of nowhere, like it's very bizarre. Um, so I'd say he's number one and number two is probably Stringer because same thing. We like to imagine that there's like this, there's these grand figures that would, that would, would seek to try and reform the drug trade and work within and, and all these, and like you're almost rooting for him, but like, he's a bad guy. I don't know. So that to me has got to be one and two and three, that makes it, that's a little harder to, to pick. Um, um, I'd have to think about even more about that, but I feel like maybe someone like bunk or something where it's like, you'd like to believe that there's a cop who's like, you know, he's working within the system. He's not perfect, but he's trying to do right by everyone. And he's a little bit, or 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 Freeman maybe, because Freeman's another one who's like very cool, and you'd like to be Freeman to a certain extent. Man, I'm surprised you didn't bring up McNulty at all. Well, it's funny the white characters in the show. Like, I, what I was going to say is the the white character that is the most, uh, most sort of um, fitting in like as a comparable to actual white people, or definitely during the times we're in, is um, is Carcetti, uh, because that's that perfect example of a guy who sees what's wrong, thinks he can fix it. But then his ambition pushes him past like the problems he's trying to fix. Like the the joke of the show is that he becomes governor, but he never actually does anything to fix the city itself. Like his ambition sort of just keeps moving him up the ladder, um, and he never and then he never gives another thought to the people that he used to get to where he was. Man, this con- this conversation is getting too deep for me, man. I I, I just wanted to to know uh, if oh. this was stuff that, that white people liked, you know. Um, come uh, on, Reynolds. <laughs> we can have some fun. Wait, 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 like... <laughs> the wires are very serious. It's a very serious thing to navigate. I feel like sometimes it is. It is serious. Um, I, I would put bubbles on that list too. Oh, right, of course, uh, yeah. I think I think white people love uh, a redemption story. Sure, and you know he had a really strong, uh, you know, redemptive arc towards the end of the series. Um, what about in terms of the five seasons? I know people love to rank the seasons. They love to complain about season two. Um, oh, but yeah. then there's another faction who who will tell you that season two is so essential um, to the overall story. Um, just because they had to introduce the Greek, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah right, no, yeah. but um, <laughs> but uh, you know, how do you think white people would rank the five seasons? Well, I think you sort of hit it on it there. I think there's definitely a strong pull now, retrospectively, to say, oh, actually, season two is the is the best one, or the or the kind of like the Rosetta Stone to unlock the rest. And in a way, that's not wrong because 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 the jump from season one to two. Hold on, hold on. And the jump between season one and two, that's where it goes from being like a show about cops trying to bust drug dealers to something to something very big, like the idea of like the broader political forces at work and how like the drug trade affects like everyone, not just not just, you know, the drug dealer or not just the police. Uh, my problem with season two really is that a lot of the actors that they put in that season are not very fun to watch. Like I think uh, uh, the guy who plays uh, Stavros is cool, but the guy who plays like Nikki, that whole Sabatka family, I do not enjoy watching. Like that's just that's just my that's just my take on it. So it really hurts the overall watchability of season two, and that's why I think three and four are more are more interesting, or let's say uh, easier to rank ahead of season two. That'd be my opinion. Yeah, and I think people would like five too, just because of the journalism angle, right? Yeah, I think now I think it's become like it highlights. I mean, it's a little ridiculous. That's the problem. It, it, by season season five is very much like David Simon like grinding an axe about like how newspapers and media are screwing up, and he's not necessarily wrong, but it does have a bit of like a bitterness in it because he's now you know he's not a journalist anymore. He's totally gotten out of that, and and obviously he he has kind of like his hobby horses that he comes back to, and and you have to be I guess you have to be aware of that that his take on Baltimore journalism and media is a little jaundiced by his own experience, rightly or wrongly. So what's the definitive uh, Daniel Reynolds wire season rankings? I, I think you have to put, 
I think you have to put three at the top just because it is a very it is the ending of a very satisfying arc with Stringer and with like that idea of like Amsterdam and like the drug trade like the entire reformation idea there that's a that's a really powerful idea and then I think four and one are very much right next after that four I think is the most emotive season because it has like like the the idea of the kids being sort of sucked into the into the world that they only sort of understand is is very powerful and it has a lot of there's a lot of powerful beats in that one like that whole bit with Carter and uh and um Randy I think is in season 4 uh you know and 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 Duquan getting you know fall his life sort of falling apart like the, some of the stuff is really is really tragic um and then I think yeah, I mean, two is is there, and then five, I guess, is the the least. Five is just kind of like it's the shortest. It's clear that it's like it's like it's the most ridiculous, but it's tying up all these other. It's satisfying because, of course, you get that final montage where it makes its big broad point, but it's still kind of a little ridiculous, let's say. Yeah, I'm with you. You know, three is my favorite, um, and you know, with four, I always say like, you know, if four is the, I think the best to watch as just a standalone. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just because they introduce the kids and you know, obviously there's still other threads happening, yeah. but you could jump in and watch the season four on its own and understand the, the condensed or yeah. the story that's contained yeah. within the season. But three, yeah. like you said, um, it has just like all of my favorite scenes, mm-hmm. I think, from from the whole show mm-hmm. and also the way it wraps up that Stringer, um, Avon storyline and, and yeah. Brother Muzon, man, this man, like this guy's like a, a villain straight out of an anime, man. I mean, he's funny. He's funny. Like it's 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 a very confident. It's a very confident show by season three. I mean, it's, I think it was always very confident, but by season three, they really, you know, Simon and Burns are really in control of what they're doing, and it's satisfying. Yeah, I think season one. I should just say one last thing about season one. I think to a certain extent, it's like a litmus test because I think some people get into season one, and it really throws you into this like world that you don't know anything about. There's no obvious like stars. Like now there are, but at the time, it you know you didn't know anyone. The actors you know, you don't know who to, who, who's who and what, what to root for, but it does a really great job of like threading all these pieces together in a really fascinating way. That's why I always sort of, I vouch for season one, but yeah, I think three and four are the strongest, most confident seasons. Yeah. So there's your expert analysis of the wire from uh, an Asian guy and a white dude. Um, you guys are welcome. So next on your list is where the wild things are. Um, so I want to read an excerpt from the blog again. It says, it is a guarantee that whenever it is announced that a popular book is being turned into a movie, white people will get upset. This is partly due to their fear that something they love will be made accessible to more people and thus enjoyed by more people, which immediately decreases the amount of joy a white person can feel towards the original property. What do you feel about this blog entry, Daniel Reynolds? I, I will say in general, I think that that sometimes is true. Uh, and I, But I mean, I, I, to a certain extent, I think that's true across many cultures and, and peoples. I think they would think that the, the, the adaptation process is always a bit challenging because I think there's a protectiveness that it's not always useful uh, in some cases. In this case, I would say it's interesting because this book, I, I feel like people's nostalgic attachment to it is like strong, but it's strong in a weird way because it's not, it's not, a, it's not a dense, it's not like there's a million details you have to get right. It's a pretty slender book. It's not like, you, it's not like you're adapting you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages of, of fiction. But I do think that there, as, as you said, and there, there is something there. People get protective about it, their childhood and their, their feelings of nostalgia, which I think is a, sometimes a waste of energy. Do you have, um, you know, a book that's been adapted into a movie that you're most protective about? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I feel like I've, I've uh, not to sound all high and mighty, I feel like I've kind of grown past that because I feel like I, I just don't get upset about it. I, I, I've acknowledged that like a lot of the things, like Watchmen is a pretty good example, I suppose. I really like the book Watchmen, the comic book. It's now been turned into a movie and a TV series. And the movie is like pretty, like the movie misunderstands fundamentally what the book is about. And the TV show is interesting, but obviously it's it's got its own problems. But I kind of just be, I'm just kind of like, well, the book still exists. It's still there on the shelf. And, uh, you know, it's a topic of discussion now, I guess. It brings it, it brings more people and I want to read it. And that means we can have more, I can talk to people about it more, which I don't know. I, I feel like I would have maybe complained about that 15 years ago, but now I'm like, yeah, that's great. Sure. Why not? 
Wow, you've grown up as yeah. a critic. Yeah, you've got to. Tell me what the problems are with the Watchmen TV show because I loved it. Well, you know, there's a push and pull there. I, I, I think it, I think it, it does work. I, I've just, it depends. Like, well, it depends when you ask me. I feel like there's, there's something about its treatment of police that definitely feels a bit strange now. And I think Damon Lindelof, the more you hear him talk about his politics, the more it's like, I'm not sure he gets what he's doing entirely. Like, I think there's a quote there where he says something like, um, you know, the, the, we've seen what happens when you go, when you have, when you're governed by a lot of right wing leadership. Uh, but what would happen if we went too far to the left? But I think there's, I think that misunderstands like what, what quote unquote too far to the left would actually be. And I think his, his understanding of that maybe is, is not as, is not as smart as he thinks it is. And so I think that's a bit of a, it puts, it puts the show on a bit of a, shaky footing uh which i mean I, like when you watch it then, and then the other thing is when you watch it it builds up all these these things and then it rushes very quickly in the last couple of episodes to be all about dr manhattan which makes sense because dr manhattan is like the most uh, powerful character but it sort of changes the whole tenor of the show and that feels like a lot of stuff that they worked on in the first couple of episodes kind of disappears or becomes less important uh, but I don't want a second season. But, but I don't want a second season. So I'm I'm fine with it as it is. Yeah, well, luckily he doesn't want one either. Yeah, so yeah, we yeah. just get to treasure yeah. this one season. You mean to tell me that Damon Lindelof uh, set up mysteries and then didn't pay them off? I know. Huge, um, huge I, twist. I know. I, I do feel like um, it's such a low bar, like after Lost, that, you know, um, even when I'm watching Watchmen or like Leftovers, mm-hmm. um, like anything that gets paid off, I'm like, oh, this is great. <laughs> Because he's yeah. redeeming himself for yeah. Lost. I, I tried to rewatch Lost recently, not, not to get off topic, but like I watched like five episodes of season one. Yeah. And I was like, wow, I can't rewatch this. No. A friend of mine tried to get me to rewatch. Like he was trying to, I think he was buying the, the series on Blu ray and he wanted to sell me or give me his DVDs. And I was like, I never want to watch that show again. Like I, I was obsessed with it. And now it's like, uh, it's like this weird, embarrassing fandom where I'm like, I can't believe I thought about that show that much. Yeah, and I think it's something to do with the fact that, like, it was made to be like a week to week show instead of yeah. like these streaming shows. Now, like, all the plot twists and the cliffhangers, like, they're all pegged to the commercial breaks and the end of shows, mm-hmm. and it's really jarring when you watch them all in a row. Yeah, yeah, for sure. the The structure of the show is different. The feeling of how we consume it now is very different, and like the discussion around it. Like, I, I feel like after that show, it really kind of broke. Like it one in one sense it broke a mold because it was like this kind of bizarre new age like mystery box show, but then it also like made it, this whole cottage industry of like deciphering. T- you know, you saw this with True Detective where they were like deciphering all the things, and then you watch that first season of True Detective, there is no grand mystery. All those red things are red herrings that mean nothing. Like it's not really that involved, but they made it seem like it was, and it's like in yeah. retrospect, it's like d- kind of dumb. Yeah, I don't regret. The 800 hours I spent on Lostpedia, though, still worth it. Uh, um, <laughs> sure, all right, you you do you, man. Oh man, remember the heart of the island? It was an actual cork. Actually, we're not getting oh, into this. Yeah. No, no, no. Um, so, so what can you tell me about where the wild things are and its popularity? Well, I think it's it's a book that definitely for white people. I think they they we grew up with it as kids. You know, it's it's it was a very commonplace book. Uh, there's a couple of other childhood authors. I feel like there's a, there's a, you could, you, if you pulled like a hundred people for the, for the purpose of this discussion, if you, you pulled like a hundred white people, many of them would know, the majority of them would know like where the wild things are, or maybe some like Dr. Seuss book or something. It'd be interesting to try and see like, if they know, like, you know, are they reading like Ezra Jack Keats as a kid or like other books that sort of maybe go a little beyond like that sort of focused uh narrative i mean i don't know and then i just think you know it's become like a like a halloween costume or like and then obviously the movie sort of made it like this bigger thing where it's like oh yeah that's what my childhood was like that's how i felt and i and i guess that's common enough but it really speaks to a subset of people i think maybe that's the case maybe that's the way to say it so next on your list that you picked from the blog is Michelle Gondry. Tell me about Michelle Gondry and why he belongs on this list. Well, it, it, it ties into that sort of Spike Jones. So Spike Jones made Where the Wild Things Are. 
they really gained a lot of traction. He and Gondry back when, if you remember uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, when that movie came out, that was like a pretty big deal in terms of taking what Spike Jones like, like, or or how like those the those trio. Actually, I should add Charlie Kaufman to that as well. Those three three guys, their writing and their directing style sort of became fairly popular in like the mid to late aughts. And something like Michelle Gondry, so someone like Michelle Gondry, he had made his name doing music videos for all kinds of different people of very different backgrounds. And I think, so to a certain extent, it's like his, his, his like very focused projects, like, um, I don't know, the science of sleep or, uh, eternal sunshine, which in a way are kind of like, they're like niche, they're like niche interests that like speak to a certain, speak to white people, I suppose. But then he lent, he lent himself to all these other, you know, he did Dave Chappelle's block party and he did, uh, um, other music videos, the We and the I, like a, a movie like that. Um, I'm trying to think of some other projects of his without looking them up off the top of my head. And I feel like he he lends a certain credibility because he because he's because he's like an art filmmaker, but he has his finger in like a lot of different of the moment cultural movements. If that makes sense. Yeah, it sounds like you know him and like Spike Jones, Charlie Kaufman, like they built an aesthetic. Oh yeah, that was pleasing to people. Yeah, and I think I think Gondry's was the most out there, like in terms of you know he'd had puppets in there and yarn and and like and like the the it'd be off kilter, um, but I think it's interesting to see like how his career went because I feel like he almost he kind of like in terms of filmmaking he kind of brushed in in the bigger time, like his last couple of like he made the Green Hornet which was should have been, which was supposed to be like a big movie with Seth Rogen, and he made. Um, be kind, rewind, which I think is really good with with most deaf and uh, Jack Black, and I think that's a really good movie to understanding his energy. That movie in particular, where it's like, it's like small scale stuff, but it's about it's about like the energy, creative energy, and it kind of goes and it kind of crosses beyond all kinds of uh, you know racial barriers, and it's really just about like do it yourself, you know, getting out there and just having fun with your friends, which is kind of a powerful a powerful uh, force, let's say. So you would agree that he's a white people favorite? Well, I mean, I think he speaks to more than, and a lot of these things, I think they speak to more than more than white people. Like I think, in one sense, to say that he's just limited to white people is a bit is a bit uh, reductive. But I do think he is a bad. He was at the very least a badge of honor, where it was like, oh, you you like Eternal Sunshine, but have you seen Signs of Sleep? Have you seen like you know these other you know are you into the flight of the concords he directed an episode of that that kind of thing where it's like are you into you know these other things that he's he's working on i'm looking at it now he made he made like short videos for like devendra banhart like like stuff that like was very niche at the time and it spoke to like the secret club of like i don't know there's a crossover there with like indie music and like which is all very like a, a to a certain extent a very white people like badge of honor pitchfork type thing to me anyway no that makes sense to me next on the list you picked Juno, the 2007 coming of age comedy drama starring Ellen Page. Why does Juno belong on this list? Well, I think to understand Juno, I mean, like there's there's a, there's a lot of vectors here. I don't know. I, I don't know if you've I don't know if, if you've thought about Juno. Have you thought about Juno at all? When it, like, have you seen it? Do you care about it at all? I watched Juno, but you know, it was just one of many movies that I watched in my life. <laughs> okay. Here's what I'll say about Juno. I I I saw it at the Toronto International Film Festival, and I was very excited to see it because I had seen Jason Reitman's uh, previous movie, like his his debut, Thank You for Smoking, also at the festival. So it was very exciting to be like one of the first audiences to see it, and it and it was very like it was one of those movies that and you could there's a million of them it feels like where especially in the last twenty years that become like these very they they start as very small movies. But then they become, you know, they become Oscar winners or they become very financially successful. You could point to, uh, you know, Napoleon Dynamite or Little Miss Sunshine or uh, I'm trying to think of some other. Lady Bird. Lady Bird to a certain extent, although Lady Bird, I would say, holds up better than some of those other ones. Um, and and they become like these, like they they build on this grand narrative. Juno is, is like that in that it, it deals with like – Again, it has that like like Michelle Gondry. It has a bit of those like twee, like indie hipster elements, 
But I think unlike some of the other movies that now are date really poorly, I think Juno gets to a pretty good place. So it, it sort of it sort of transcends uh, some of the 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 period that it's in. Let's say. Um, what were you gonna say? Yeah, and Juno is a Fox Searchlight film. Yeah, and Fox Searchlight is you know is or was the leader of these um, coming of age films. So I want to know your Fox Searchlight Pictures Mount Rushmore. You know, it's funny now they're just called now it's just Searchlight Films because they took the Disney bought them all right. I think. Can you believe that? Twentieth Century it's Fox. Just a, it's just Searchlight. It's just a monopoly. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. So to do this, I was I had to look up a list because it's like you try and look at like basically going back to the nineties, what your what your your four favorites would be, and it's it's harder to do than you'd think, but only to a point. Like the the first one that jumps out to me that would be uh, Sideways. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Never finished that movie. Please really? Nobody flame me. <laughs> you don't like you don't like Sideways. I just I don't know. I was an hour in. I probably rented this from Blockbuster, I guess, back in the day. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Just uh didn't get it. <laughs> All right. I mean, to a certain extent, Alexander the films of Alexander Payne could be put in the uh stuff white people like category. But I mean he I feel like his unlike, for example, Jason Reitman and his later work, uh Payne's like satire is like really sharp. It's still pretty sharp. And some of his best movies, like Election or uh, sideways, or um, some other good ones. Uh, I'm racking my brains now. Uh, oh, uh, Nebraska. They're, they, these are really good movies, I would say. But those aren't also no. Those aren't searchlight films. Yeah, no, I know. I know. Sideways is like very critically yeah. acclaimed, right? Yeah. Um, I just, I just couldn't do it. Maybe I'll revisit it. I have plenty of time. Yeah. yeah. So I, I got to put that one in there. Um, and then uh, let's see, going through this again. Uh, you know, I I hadn't scrolled far enough. Man, there's a there's a wide selection here. We get into some Wes Anderson stuff, and in on that front, I think I'd have to probably put, uh, um, what's it called in it? My um, the Grand Budapest Hotel. I think that was that's one of his strongest films, and I I'd, I'd I'd put that in that list. Uh, I love that. I love that movie, and and that is the Grand Budapest Hotel. And probably Wes Anderson movies in general is like the source of inspiration for like 90% of Tumblr and people's Instagram mood boards. You think um, so? Yeah, I see I see the screenshots from the Grand Budapest Hotel yeah. like everywhere on social. I mean, he's cultivated at Wes Anderson. The aesthetic is, I mean, people make fun of him, but like, you know, he had over the years, he's he's really got that sensibility down. And when you see a frame of his film, when you see a still, you go, oh yeah, that's a Wes Anderson movie, and I mean, like that's, I mean, I don't, I can't think of a, a reason why that would be bad necessarily. I mean, that's his aesthetic, that's his style. <laughs> I'm not saying any of this is bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I get very defensive. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, you're not the first one. <laughs> yeah. Talking about Wes Anderson um, films, I gotta get defensive about it, but all right, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, another white people trait. Yeah. Um, but no, we'll we'll get to Wes Anderson. Spoiler, yeah, yeah. that's next. So you've got Sideways, Grand Budapest Hotel. This is what tough because because part of it is like I'm trying to think about my favorite movies versus like the best movies. Like I think there's someone here that like you could maybe no, let this be let this be your favorite. Yeah, so I'm trying to really think of my favorites on this list that that also sort of still hold up. There are some that I I would at the time have considered like my favorites, like like uh, something like Birdman or uh, Shame. I, I remember seeing them and being like, yeah, these are really good movies. But like as time sort of passes, I'm kind of looking back going, well, I don't know, maybe. Yeah, there's interesting things there. But I, I don't know if that's maybe because I've, I've, I've read more film criticism and considered it differently or if it's because like I'm being swayed by it uh, unnecessarily. I don't know. But I guess uh, on that front, I think maybe I would add, I would maybe add uh, The Favorite, which I think definitely holds up. Uh, and that's a really, that's a fairly, relatively recent one. And uh, you know that one? Yeah, I watched The Favorite. Yeah. Um, this is the one about the Queen, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's made by Yorgos Lanthimos, the Greek the Greek. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's with Olivia Coleman, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Emma Stone. Oh, yeah, that movie was twisted. Yeah. Um, I, I, liked, I enjoyed it, though. Yeah, I think that one, I mean, his aesthetic is so cool. And it's a really, it's kind of a funny movie, too. Like, I shouldn't say kind of. It is a funny movie, but then it's like, it's unsettling. 
but it's like it, it's unsettling in a strange way. So that's on your list. So that's three, right? Yeah. Did you I, name three or yeah, four? Yeah, I, I don't you know. Want... This is tough. Okay, you know what? I was going to put win-win, but I already got a Paul Giamatti film on there. So I'll go with The Savages, which I think is a very underrated movie with Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, made by Tamara Jenkins. Oh, wait, oh, did I, wait, am I forgetting? No, it is. Yeah, made by Tamara Jenkins, who kind of – she made this movie. It didn't really – it didn't really make much of a splash, unfortunately. And I think she was back recently with um, the movie Private Life, which is on Netflix. But this movie was really underseen, I think. And I'll put that on there. That'll be my 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 lesser known film to add to that that uh, Mount Rushmore. All right. So you mentioned Wes Anderson. And next on the list from the blog that you picked is Wes Anderson movies. So explain the Wes Anderson appeal to me. Well, I think you sort of hit on it there that like the the aesthetic of Wes Anderson has become like to a certain extent became like this much bigger thing where everyone wanted their their bedroom, their their desk, their you know, the 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 things that he put in his films and the way he sort of cultivated his image, the the wardrobe and the style and the music, like even the music he was the soundtracks he had in, has in his films all sort of became like part of the stuff white people like so the so the movies themselves like it became like a shorthand you just say oh yeah that's that wes anderson thing because you right away you you would know that the film was wes anderson but you would also know exactly what that meant in terms of style and and aesthetic and music and everything else so i think people sort of white people in particular glommed onto that as like part of their their brand their own extension of their own personal brand and something that they maybe aspire to which is kind of funny i think in retrospect but i think that's where it came from yeah he's obviously got a very huge cult following i guess i would say um which other white um directors do you think has the same level of a cult following Ooh. like a wes Anderson? uh christopher nolan yeah i mean he's he's definitely got like a huge like in that like I, I, their his fans are much more aggressive. Like if you if you say you don't like a Wes Anderson film, uh, nothing bad's going to happen to you. But if you say you don't like a Christopher Nolan film, I feel like people go nuts online. Particularly if you start talking about the Batman movies. And literally this morning, we were I was joking with some people on Twitter about this about which Nolan films are good or bad or you know, uh, yeah, I think he he inspires a lot of um, passion. Let's say, um, and on that level, it's tough. I think I feel like fewer directors now uh, sort of draw that sort of um, attention, partly because there's so few of them that like get to make movies that like punch through the zeitgeist. Like now I think the big thing is if you attack like a Marvel movie, then you get attacked by Marvel fans, but, but Marvel fans don't really care about who directs the Marvel movies. Cause it almost doesn't matter. Right. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Which director do you think you've, gone to bat for the most or you've defended well the most. ironically i would say nolan has been the one lately because i feel like it's weird it's not a controversial opinion to say you like chris nolan films because his films are huge like everyone like they make hundreds of millions of dollars but i do feel like i have to explain myself so i end up i end up sort of defending my enjoyment of like the batman movies and like dunkirk and interstellar and like you know because there's because of course because he's such a big deal there are a lot of people that want to like pick his films apart which makes sense because they're they're enormous so it's fair to do that so i guess i get caught up in that other guys like wes anderson there was a time where maybe i would get more animated about it but now i feel like his his style is so clearly established to say that you don't like it you just kind of go okay fine you don't like it that's fine you don't have to like wes Anderson's style but like it, it may just not be for you but i i think to dismiss him entirely is kind of not a, I, I just don't like that idea because I feel like he is, like he, he you know, like like the like the directors of old. He he's he's re, he's going over the same sort of, like a lot of the same themes because that's what a lot of directors do. They 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 glom onto something that is definitely in their mind and in their heart, and then they just keep making films about that in different ways. In in your opinion, who's the most overrated white director? Overrated? Oh well, I mean, that's a good question. Oh man. Uh, Right now, uh, oh man, I don't know. Well, in terms of like how he keeps getting all these big chances, I mean, someone like Tom Hooper, who like 
you know, like apparently he's a real pain to work with and got all this money to make Cats, which is a big mess. And like, he's gotten all this attention for all of his films, but none of them are good. So that's a, that's an example. Um, but yeah, that's a tough one. Cause I, cause I feel like, oh man, I don't know. Like are there, are there directors that you see people talk about and praise all the time and you're like, I don't get it. Oh man, you really put me on the spot. I feel like I should have a better answer for this. I'm trying to think of like, uh, I mean, like, unfortunately, like some of the, some of the, unfortunately, some of the directors I'm thinking of are not white. Like, like, I feel like, like, I feel like, for example, Guillermo del Toro gets a lot of love and he's a very nice guy. I saw him give a talk in Toronto. He's very, he's very enthusiastic and, and lovable, but his films aren't that good. Like they're just, they're just lately, the films have not been good. You know what I mean? So like, uh, yeah, like that's one guy where just I'm like, can't, hey. just can't throw, can't throw one of yours under the bus. This no, is like me defending my, this is like me defending my, uh, the Rush Hour movies. Um, you know, well, they're, they're, yeah, we could, we could talk about, uh, what's his face? Brett Ratner. He's, <laughs> he's a real piece of work. Yeah. We're not talking about Brett yeah. Ratner. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right, moving on next on the list, you pick film festivals. I think for anyone that knows you, this one is pretty self-explanatory. Um, <laughs> But okay, so here on the blog, um, in the blog entry, he listed seven facts under film festivals. So I want to read these facts okay. to you, and you can confirm and deny whether these are true, um, you know, according to you. Fact number one, 90% of white people have taken a film class at some point in their life. I would say that's, that feels true. That feels true. I was in engineering and I, and I still took a film class. So a film and philosophy class. So I feel like it's that, that rings true. Fact number two, white people like feeling smart without doing work. Two hours in a theater is easier than 10 hours with a book. Well, let's now, I would say that's true, but I feel like that's true of a lot of people and a lot of, because <laughs> I feel like more people are interested in watching movies than reading books, just generally speaking. But yes, definitely white people would say that. I'm just going to skip some of these. Uh, 75% of white people believe they either have the potential or will become filmmakers, screenwriters, or directors at some point. Uh, that they won't admit it, but I definitely think a part of, a part of like, I feel like a lot of white people definitely feel like they can, they want to, they can or could or would like to make it in a creative industry. And I definitely, I, I have to admit, of course, that I, I put myself in there because I, I write screenplays and I've written, written, make comic books and stuff. So, I mean, it doesn't really go anywhere, but I definitely think about it. Let's say that. So yes, that brings. Yeah. True. And it's a passion of yours. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, that's like, these are to a certain extent, this kind of speaks to a broader sort of uh, class issue that film festivals and things touch on that. Like the people that get involved in these things usually have a bit of uh, security blanket or wealth so it allows them to, you know, spend time daydreaming or working on like that screenplay, going to the coffee shop to work on their screenplay kind of thing. And that's maybe not a luxury that's extended to all peoples everywhere. Next fact, white people hate stuff that is quote unquote mainstream. So they go to film festivals where they can see movies that every other person in their demographic wants to see. True or false? Well, it ties into, you know, white people like to feel smart. So, so, so the idea that they could get into something in advance and like, you know, they're seeing movies ahead of time that maybe are going to get in, get become bigger deals later. And they got to see it first and it's outside the mainstream and, and they get to sort of, especially now with social media where they can talk about it in advance. I mean, yes, that's definitely part of the, the perk of going to a film festival because oftentimes you're paying more money to see the movies at a film festival than you would be ordinarily, but you get to see it three, six, a year, you know, months in advance, a year in advance, or even longer sometimes. Yeah, last one. White people earn credibil credibility by being into film from strange countries. Oh, you like Batman? Yeah, I didn't see it. I'm really into this Serbian film right now. They had a great retrospective at the Vancouver Film Festival. <laughs> True or false? I mean, I think white people like to think it gives them added credibility. I can say, hold on, let, let me let me ask you, let me ask you this way: Do you think, in your mind, that you know more about foreign films than anybody that you know in your life? No, not anybody. No, no. I I think I know. I think I have. I think I think I know more than let's say, like the average movie fan. But I think there are people that I know that know much more than me, 
and I like to t- like to pick their brains about it. But like, I know that there are people that know way more than I do. Is that okay? Is that fair? You, yeah, yeah. You keeping it humble. I, I like um, to think that a... I like to think the way I look at film fandom. When you talk about foreign films, the way I like to think about it is when I when I started to take an interest in film when I was like a young teenager. I got into the idea of all these films that I didn't know about. Like I, I, I started looking at, like for example, the American Film Institute did a thing, a top 100 movies list back in like 90, back in like 98, 99. And I, I knew like none of the films on the list. And some of these are like American classics, but I knew none of them. So I, I was really obsessed with seeing as many of them as I could. But then what you discover is that there's a whole other, like there are, whole, there are all these other lists of like best foreign films from different countries and best this and best that and best this and you started you start to realize that it's actually there's a much bigger world so my 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 vantage point now the way i think about it now is not so much that i'm better than anyone because i know this but i try and share it because i because i think in some cases it opens your mind to other things like bigger things and it and it and it sort of gets you to think about like that there are whole film industries that are totally detached from there was a funny quote when bong joon ho was asked about the oscars he was like, oh, that's a very local film festival, like a very local award show. And it sort of puts you in mind where you realize there are countries that have whole film industries and award shows and festivals that have nothing to do with like the Oscar Hollywood uh, infrastructure. And they, they exist just fine because they produce their own product for their own people and they export it around the world and they don't need, they don't need to know what's going on in LA because they got a whole other thing going on. And I think sometimes it helps to remember that. Yeah, that's a really good point. So tell me what you love most about film festivals. Well, I think I think the the feeling I am searching for when I go to film festivals and and it's hard to it's hard because a lot of it is a gamble, but I think the feeling what I what I really look forward to is finding the film like maybe a smaller film or 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 something maybe you don't quite know a lot about and then like really being blown away by it. And I've been going to the, the Toronto International Film Festival. I've been going to TIFF now for, I don't know, something like 15 years or maybe even longer, maybe closer to, no, maybe something like that, 15 years. And it, it doesn't happen that often because basically when you're picking your, the movies you go to see, you're choosing between movies that you know are going to come out and be big deals and be, get a lot of attention, you know, Oscars or otherwise. They're filled with Hollywood stars and stuff like that. So you, you, go, with, you go, in, go into them thinking, okay, I'm, I'm going to get to see this ahead of time. And it's going to be, you know, kind of cool to see it first and kind of talk about it first. But you're also trying to pick movies that are smaller from other countries or from from Canada, from from America, that like maybe they they do something special. And you never know necessarily when you're going to find them. But when you do, it's a very exciting it's a very exciting moment because in some cases it's changed now a little bit. But in some cases you don't know if you're ever going to get a chance to see them again. You don't know if they're ever going to come out like in theaters in North America or if they're going to be on a streaming service somewhere or if they're going to like where, where you're going to see them again. So in some cases it's kind of, it's kind of exciting. And I can think of, I can think of examples from like last TIFF and from previous TIFFs where I was like, Oh man, I really hope, you know, people get to see this movie sometime. And then when it does come out, I, I, I get to sort of champion it, not because I'm sort of better than everyone. Cause I got to see it, but because I want people to see it. I want people to be excited about it. Like I'm excited about it. So that's how I kind of go into it. That's the feeling I'm hoping to get. Man, your passion for film festivals is inspiring right now. Um, well, it's unfortunate because obviously now TIFF this year is probably going to be, you know, who knows what it's going to be. It's going to be a digital you know, online only film festival or something. It's not going to be, we might not get a film festival like of old, you know, for another year or two. So it's kind of sad, but yeah. Yeah, I think they should make people virtually wait two hours outside. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, just to recreate the experience or, yeah. or have a virtual rush line. Actually, I'm sure they're going to have one of those. Oh, they already do um, have the digital line. Yeah, you wait in lines already. But yeah, yeah, it'll get worse, I'm sure. So last on the list that you picked was Oscar parties. Um, are you a regular host or attendee of Oscar parties, Daniel Reynolds? Uh, I will say that I have never quite hosted an Oscar party, but I've definitely, I definitely make a point of every year uh, watching the Oscars. Uh, and I have over the years uh, attended various, you know, little Oscar party gathering type things where maybe you do a little side bet or have a little Oscar pool or, you know, something like that where we've, we've tried to compete while we watch the Oscars. But yes, I definitely watch them every year. 
when's the last time you weren't in some kind of Oscars pool or filled out your ballot Ooh. before the Oscars? Uh, I, I must admit that like I didn't do it this year. I, I, I don't know that I think of it. I'm not sure I did it the last couple of years. I feel like there was a time a few years ago where it was like in the office, uh, there would definitely be a pool, you know, and everyone would throw in two bucks or five bucks and, and we'd have some fun. Uh, but lately, no, the last couple of years, I would say, no, I haven't done that. Do you feel like the Oscars are still as relevant now as they were, say, 10, 20 years ago? That's an interesting question because it depends sort of how you think about, like, I think in one sense, they are relevant because you saw it this year. When when Parasite started winning the awards, you start to see that here it is. Here's a movie that, to, to my mind, was by far the best of the nominees. And then it wins Best Picture, but it's a foreign language film. And it's, you know, in a way, it's kind of a, you know, it's kind of a outside of the box choice because it's, you know, it's a bit of a strange film and it's kind of, it's kind of violent and it's kind of all these different things. But for all the people that say the Oscars don't matter anymore, I think they still sort of dominate a certain level of discourse where who wins matters because it get it opens people's eyes to, you know, more of Bong Joon-ho's films, more of Korea's films, more of the worldly, like more films out there in the world. So as like a mark of quality, they don't really matter. Like this isn't like 1945 or something. And even then, back then when they gave out the best picture, you know, award, even then they never got, they didn't always get it right. But I think there's an idea here where the narratives that come out of the Oscars, good or bad, matter because it draws attention to overlooked films. So in the last couple of years, you can think of examples like that. Like Moonlight winning was a huge deal because of how it won, but then because it did win, that was a big deal. So in that sense, the Oscars don't really, like you have to take everything with the Oscars with a grain of salt because of the organization and because of who's involved and because of the, the unfortunately, the commercial aspects that come into play and because they're always going to be skewed towards certain films that come out at a certain time in a certain place and the certain narratives that dominate the Oscar season. But at the same time, it gets it gets people thinking about it, it gets people angry about it, it gets people you know, wondering about it, uh, which, which is better than total antipathy or total apathy, I should say, in that regard. What do you think is the whitest Oscar award category? The whitest Oscar award category? <laughs> well, I was going to say it's going to be... Best screenplay, maybe? Best director, maybe, yeah. Um, yes. So almost Cinematography? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's funny. I think, I think obviously a lot of attention is... When they say Oscar is so white, the, a lot of attention gets paid, obviously, to the actor categories because those are the most visual obvious uh things you know you, you you look at 20 people and let's say 19 of them are white you know or all of them are white and you're like well how did that happen how did no one how did no black people no asian people no uh latino people how did no one get any sort of good roles that were worth oscar consideration and then of course there are those roles but of course those films don't get any attention so Yes, that in that sense, it's very white or it's very obvious. But then when you look at some of the technical sides, like you, you mentioned cinematography or um, I, I, ironically, yeah, directing, I think, has been this case for a long time. It's all, you know, directing for the longest period of time, it was like all white people. And then when there were really some high profile guys like a Spike Lee, the story became how they didn't get nominated, even though they definitely should have, right? Like, in you know, for Do the Right Thing, he definitely should have gotten nominated, but didn't. So it's like those kind of things where, it's very obvious. Yeah. So I've got two more items since we, you know, obviously this was a very pop culture uh, slant that, that we took. I have two submissions to the stuff white people like list. Um, and the first one is um, quoting Seinfeld in Ooh. everyday conversation. Oh, how did you know? Yeah. Um, you know, everything always uh, relates to that one time, that one Seinfeld episode. Okay. Um, um, I, I feel like, you know, that is a regular occurrence. Uh, number two is uh, debating any and every single uh, uh, tournament online of TV and, mm -hmm. and movie uh, rankings. Like every time, yeah. you know, The Ringer puts out like a, you know, 64 best villains yeah. of all time type tournaments. Um, there's just an excitement. Mm -hmm. uh, in the air uh, for people to argue over those. Okay, well, I'll, I'll take number two first because cause here's my opinion on number two. I, I don't care about that stuff anymore, but I do think there definitely is this kind of, this desire 
in white people in particular to prove that they are right about the cultural sort of thing. So like they, they, you know, when you put all the villains in it or the best wire characters or the best Marvel movie or the best, I don't know, there's a bracket going on now of the best film of all time and everyone's voting. It's on Twitter. Uh, so I do think there's a kind of a, uh, you're right, that white people definitely want to be heard and, and be seen as being correct about all those choices. I'm of the opinion that it's, it's, it's mostly just fun to maybe participate, but I can't really get worked up about it because you're never going to agree. And it's always kind of ridiculous, like in terms of trying to decide, like who makes those polls, who makes the, who makes the brackets, who decides which ones are the most popular. I don't know. It's kind of absurd. Number one, though, wait, let me ask you this before I get to number one. Do you care about that stuff? What do you mean, do I care? Like, do you get invested in those brackets anymore? Do you get inv- invested in those brackets? No, like ranking I and- just, I don't, I don't get invested in uh, wanting my opinion to be heard online, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, is, is the, I guess, the grander answer. I mean, I like going through them and stuff. Okay. But I'm definitely not here to argue you know whether yeah. um, uh, Far is the best Disney villain. Um, <laughs> things of that nature. It, it is. It is funny. Some of it is. Some of it is that baked in nostalgia. Like we're going to rank Disney villains, and we're going to get really into that. And it's just like, at a certain point, you just got to be like, these Disney cartoon movies that you liked when you were ten, just they're in the past now. Just forget about it. You know what I mean? Like I just, it's not worth getting worked up about anymore. I just, I have no. There's nothing there for me to get worked up about anymore. Because I, because there's so much more stuff to think about, new stuff other stuff all kinds of stuff so that's my man you've, you've grown you've grown out of that phase I, to a certain extent yeah i mean I, when i when i used to write more of this stuff like when i used to write like rankings and and things I, I you get really into it because you're trying to create justifications in your mind and you can, and you're having fun like that's the thing when i do like when i do like you know when i write raptor stuff or movie stuff where i'm doing rankings rankings can be fun to write but like i'm not here to fight with anyone about it i'm just like writing a fun thing top 10 this top 15 this but I mean, you're happy to, I'm happy to hear the other side and be like, oh yeah, you're right. That's cool. Cause we're just all talking about having fun. That's the way I look at it. Yeah. Do you feel like the online discourse and, and, you know, you know, better than me probably with, you know, with TVs and movies, yeah. like sometimes it does get, you know, bad or it's just not a good conversation. Yeah. Do you think that has discouraged you too, from, you know, wanting to engage in these things anymore? I think you can get in these very heated discussions and I, and I, and sometimes I don't really get why it's so heated. And sometimes I feel like you're arguing with people that like don't know as much as they think they know. Like they, like they watch the wire and now they're going to, now they're going to rank best intersections in Baltimore. And it's like, well, you know, I don't know if you know that much. I feel like you watched the show, but let's relax a little bit. You know what I mean? Oh man. Yeah. And did you want to speak about quoting Seinfeld in everyday conversation? Seinfeld thing. I feel like this is very particular and I just happen to be, I'm glad you brought this up because I feel like it is very particular. And uh, for the most part, yes, it is white guys. I have a couple of friends who are, I can think of at least one friend of mine who is a Brown guy who is into it. But most of the people that do this are definitely white guys in my age category, like in the early to mid thirties that grew up with Seinfeld on TV constantly. And it was like the most, in one sense, it was like the most adult show you could sort of get your hands on because it was always on TV. And the, the situations these guys were in were always kind of like growing up, even though you didn't really understand half the time when you were like 13, what the heck they were talking about. But now it's just like, it's the most easiest way to, like the Simpsons quotes, it's like the easiest way to like make a joke or make a point or connect something or get a laugh. And it is definitely a conversational crutch for sure, 100%. And in some cases- I do I- want- yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, in some cases, when I have friends that maybe I don't see that often or I don't talk to that often, it's like we revert right back to like making a Seinfeld joke, like making it's like, you know, oh, how's it going? And then it's like, yeah, that's good. And then it's like, oh, yeah. And then you just make a Seinfeld joke and you laugh. And it's like, that's the thing you can always bond over. That's what I would say. You know, the, the bigger point for me, you know, I'm mostly just impressed at how people can remember these things i watch stuff i watch a movie from two months ago yeah and i can barely recall like two scenes for you uh, this this again is why it's it's very specific because it, it's like you have to understand you'd come home from like i was in like grade eight grade seven you come home from school and it would be on tv like it would be on at like three thirty or 4 o'clock this is partly because of course we live close to like the buffalo like new york thing so this would be broadcast on on Toronto stations, like on, on Fox Buffalo, the affiliate, 
So you'd be watching it when you come home from school. And then if you were allowed to, you'd be watching it like on NBC at nine o'clock. So then you'd be, you'd be into it that way. So like, I don't, I don't even, I don't even remember. I can't even remember a time. Like, I don't even remember how I watched, started watching it. Like, I can't even think of a time where I was like, oh, let me see what the Seinfeld is about. It was just like, it was on TV and then you'd watch it. And then it was kind of funny. And then it's just like tattooed in your brain. Cause then you watch it a million times. Now I don't even need to watch it. I never need to watch like people are like you can get it on DVD. I'm like, I'll never own Seinfeld on DVD because why I've already seen them all like a million times. It's already in my brain. I wonder too, like when you mentioned Seinfeld and the Simpsons, like what's going to be this generation Seinfeld or Ooh. Simpsons, or is there even one? Like who, who are people going to be quoting? Like people that are like 15 years old right now, what are they going to be think, quoting? I don't think, day? I don't think you can, I don't think you can do it that way anymore. Cause I think now the culture is such that, that and the, it's, it's all memes now. I think memes are the online memes are the, the in joke of the of the day, and what's funny is you see TV shows that then, like the hip TV hip TV shows are aware of online memes, but not the other way around. So they like so memes become the sort of thing that the lingua franca franca that everyone that everyone sort of that younger people glom onto, as opposed to like everyone watching you know one TV show and then that becoming their their cultural lexicon. It's funny. I feel like that's the only way it could be now because there's just too much. There's just no way to get any sort of consensus on a TV show. Yeah, no, that's a really good point about memes. All right, before you go, I think you had one item you wanted to submit to the list as well. Well, we talked about every single thing, it feels like, uh, 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 in this regard. But lately, obviously, we're in quarantine and uh, I've been getting back into going back to my roots and getting into uh, 90s PC games. Uh, and getting really obsessed with them, just like I was back in the '90s. Uh, and so, one in particular, I, it, when I was when I was talking about it on Twitter, I was talking about um, I don't know if you ever heard of the game Baldur's Gate, but it's like a, a, a I have you I have, have heard that it's game? a role playing game. Yeah, so it's a Dungeons and Dragons role playing game. It uses the Dungeons and Dragons rule set, and I feel like I started tweeting about it, and like like there are people that started responding to the tweet that knew exactly like not only knew exactly what I was talking about, but you could tell they were like very much into it, like very much like they had very strong feelings about it. They had played it a lot. And I, I don't know, there's something about that, that genre of game that like, like Dungeons and Dragons, I feel like people think of it as a very like white, like nerd uh, culture. And uh, again, I don't want to say that, that it's only white people that play Dungeons and Dragons, but it is interesting how like the people that are very much into it or like very proud of it in retrospect, end up being like like white guys again of a certain age that are like oh yeah that's that's for me that's what i'm obsessed with so it is kind of funny now i'm sitting here playing this game and like getting caught up in like my own uh nostalgia like we were talking about before my own nostalgia for that time where just getting really into like the rules and like the storyline and like this fantastical thing and it's funny now because i feel like fantasy stuff has caught on more in the pop culture like game of thrones and stuff but it, but there was a time when it was very much a niche uh, thing for a very sub, small subset of nerds who were into fantasy stuff, and I feel like those all kind of laced together somehow. And it, anyway, it, it, there's definitely a culture there that's uh, I'm not saying it's very welcoming, but it definitely exists. No, that's interesting. No, I, I welcome that addition. All right, Reynolds, that that was the entire um, itinerary for us. Yeah. Uh, is there anything else you would like to add? I mean, we could go another hour on gentrification, but I think maybe we, we've, we've, we've tackled every major subject we can tackle. Yeah, I've got lots to think about, and yeah. you know, maybe you too. Um, <laughs> appreciate you coming on, and uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks for having me on, man.